This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com. You're listening to Femi on FUBAR Radio. I've been wondering what that special place in hell looks like for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan how to carry it safely. What I've set out is our clear position that we must secure legally binding changes to the withdrawal agreement to deal with the concerns that Parliament has over the backstop. And taking that, changes to the backstop, together with the other work that we're doing on workers' rights and other issues, will deliver a stable majority in Parliament, and that's what I will continue to push for. The discussion was robust but constructive. Despite the challenges, the two leaders agreed that their teams should hold talks as to whether a way through can be found that would gain the broadest possible support in the UK Parliament and respect the guidelines agreed by the European Council. It's not going to be easy, but crucially President Juncker and I have agreed that talks will now uh, start to find a way through this, to find a way to get this over the line and to deliver on the concerns that Parliament has so we get a majority in Parliament. While we're open to further discussions with the United Kingdom, the withdrawal agreement, which was negotiated in good faith over many months and agreed by 28 governments, including that of the United Kingdom, stands. It is the best deal possible. Hi, it's Femi, guy from Our Future, Our Choice. You are listening to The Floor Is Yours. I'm here with Matthew Todd, who's a, who's a, who's a writer. He's written for The Guardian and who else are you writing for? I used to edit Attitude, the gay magazine, for eight years. Nice. Yeah, good for me, eh? Yeah, not bad, not bad, it's not right, bad. Um, and, yeah, this week has been interesting in the news. What's been your favourite point? point? Um, just the general uh, kind of calamity of Brexit. To be honest, I know that's your thing. I tend to switch off from it now. It's so, like, overwhelming and depressing and crazy, and you never know who to believe and who to listen to. So that goes on. I was really sad about the footballer, actually. I think that's just... Yeah, Emilia Salah. Yeah, really, 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 really sad. Just, mm. you know, I, I, you know, we've all, well, most of us have had bereavements in our lives, and I think for someone like him who was so young and he was so mm. successful and, like, doing something so positive for that to happen, it seems such a crazy thing to happen, you know, such a, a needless thing to happen. It's very, very sad, isn't it? Well, it was horrible. I mean, uh, the flight was missing for. I mean, they couldn't. They didn't find they, the accident happened a couple of weeks ago, and they didn't find him for how long? Yeah, it's been. Uh, I mean, it's literally. I think it was just a few days ago they found the plane, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, which is terrible. I mean, and, and, the, and the week in general has been uh, just one crap show to the next. Uh, you had. Oh, well, there was one piece of absolutely shocking news regarding Brexit, which was, um, well, let's give you the background to it. So in November, uh, having spent two years negotiating this Brexit deal, Theresa May uh, finally presented that deal to Parliament. Um, They didn't like it then. Um, uh, She then thought, all right, we're going to get them to vote on it in December. And then it looked like they were going to vote massively against it. So she said, all right, let's not do that. Let's keep trying try and get some more concessions from the EU, some reassurances that the backstop, which basically keeps us in the customs union of the EU, the trade policy of the EU, until we can find a way to solve the Northern Irish border situation, which is a problem that really can't be solved. Um, 
and so then she presented it again mid-January and Parliament voted against it in proportions that have never been seen before in this country mm, that was uh, an exciting night I enjoyed that yeah that was I fun, that was, fun. <laughs> I was like look what people are saying on Twitter it's the end of the world that was good yeah yeah it's nice, it's nice to see the collapse of modern civilization yeah. um, and then uh, she then presented the, its Parliament again and they said that uh, oh we're going to have to go back to the Brussels and try and get remove the backstop which they've said several times it cannot be removed and so the shocking news this week was that apparently having gone back to brussels to ask for the backstop to be removed the eu isn't willing to renegotiate what a shocker which they said from the beginning which they? which they said for about you know half mm. a year yeah um but here's the thing you then had donald tusk who is the um uh, pre- pre- president of the European Council, uh, who said that there is a special place in hell for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan for how to carry it safely. <laughs> and that seemed to kick up quite a fuss. Um, the European Council is basically the heads of government of the EU who meet together and set the general policy direction of the EU. So you've got the president basically saying that your Boris Johnsons, your Nigel Farage's, your Jacob Rees-Mogg's, your Michael Gove's all belong in hell. What do you think of that? Um, <clears throat> well, I voted to remain. I don't really like... I don't. I don't know. I don't really. I, I've gone. I have gone off those people, the tusks and things like that. I do think when they're so kind of disrespectful. I mean, I don't. I don't know if that's a helpful thing for him to say. Like, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Boris Johnson is going to go to hell one day, <laughs> um, and it may be the hell that we all live through collectively in the in the next few months. Who knows? But yeah, I, I mean, I, I. I just. I mean, we're going to talk about climate change shortly, mm. and. I feel very much this kind of that, that that kind of thing. It's rhetoric. It becomes this thing in the news cycle, and that that becomes the thing. Should he have said it? Should he have not mm. said it? Are they are going to go to hell? Should we attack France? You know, it's <laughs> it's just the drama of it. Or it just yeah. it, it feels like it gets in the way of the the really important things that we should be discussing because everyone's so di- I mean everyone's so divided, aren't they? So people who you know who support Brexit will just be hating on him for a minute, mm. and everyone else will be agreeing, and then hating on the other side. It just seems to go around and yeah. around and around, and it is. I find it a bit depressing and like a distraction. A distraction. I know Brexit's massively important. Of course, it is. It's hugely, hugely, hugely important. But there's so many things that aren't being addressed and because talked about everything. In the world because it's all revolving around this. It's just so yep. crazy. It's unbelievable. For for two years, it's been Brexit, Trump, third story of the day, every yep. single news cycle. Yeah, which is really, really. Um, um, uh, not really helpful. Um, Theresa May says that she will sort it out. Um, uh, the EU EU's saying that talks were robust and constructive, um, but uh, they're still saying they're not going to renegotiate. And the Irish PM says that the, rene- the withdrawal agreement isn't going to be reopened. So we are stuck with a deal that nobody wants. Um, mm. And pretty much, and this is what our future choice keeps saying, the only way out of this mess is for us to have a new vote. Uh, your thoughts? Um, I ha- I've generally been against a new vote because mm. I just feel like even though I voted to remain, I just feel I, I, he- I hear, listen to radio a lot and I hear people phoning up in radio, sta- radio stations, the kind of people who would never normally call, mm. who sound really, really, really angry mm. at this idea that they've had that the establishment, quote unquote, are trying to stitch them up, have decided they don't want Brexit, they don't want to, to honour the result of the referendum and will find a way of getting out of it. I kind of feel like we've made our bed and we need to somehow go through with it. I do totally respect mm. the other side of the argument to the degree that I hear people saying, well, of course it doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? And that an act of kind of collective self-harm 
let's have a vote, let's get out of it. But I just think that's really will be like taking a kind of huge axe to the oak tree that is d- democracy because, you know, there's so many things that I disagree with, so many, vo- mm. you know, vo- vote results, but we can't just get our way out of it. So I, I, I mean, the thing is, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Mm. I, I just don't know. I just think this is such a disaster. And, you know, as much as anyone else, you know, I want to kind of rage at the Prime Minister when I see her and all the other people, and Michael Gove and... Um, there's that other one, I can't remember his name, the one that I really want to strangle, the doctor. Um, um, I don't really want to strangle him, but I <laughs> metaphorically want to strangle him. But, but I, I don't know, I, I, just feel like, I just feel like we need to maybe, maybe honour it. For, for me, it's not so much about Remainers not liking the outcome and therefore wanting a new vote. For me, my point is that we have a Brexit that Brexit voters themselves don't want because we've negotiated a deal that means that we are basically bound by the rules of the EU but have no say in them, which if, if you voted to take back control and instead what you get is we give up our dominant position in setting the rules of the EU as an EU member but are bound by those rules anyway, we've effectively got less control, which basically means you've got the exact opposite of what you wanted when you voted for Brexit, which means that if we do go through with Brexit, neither side, neither the 48% or the 58%, 52% are going to get what they want. And I feel that that would be taking an axe to democracy. Well, the thing that they do seem to really want is uh, a no-deal Brexit. Mm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, you know, well, I was watching well. Question Time last week, and when that, when that came up, that got the biggest cheer. And you mm. hear people all the time and saying that uh, out and about. I mean, you know, d- that does sound like a calamity. Mm. I, I, that's the thing I just I honestly I can't sit here and go we should definitely do this we should definitely do that because I just think mm. it's such an absolute cluster of a disaster mm. I don't think anyone really c- like could, can make you know like a call and be absolutely so I mean I really respect the fact that you mm. are upset mm. and you, what you think because I think because I, I find it re- so hard to, to yeah. really know it's, what to think it's been a shit show from, from yeah, start it's to been finish in, it's been in I mean these last few years have been terrifying and I actually do, I do think it's the beginning of the end mm. that's me the ray of sunshine <laughs> coming in I do I do think we are we are tip we are we have gone over a cliff edge and I don't but, mean just in the UK I mean the whole world I think we I think we are heading towards an absolute calamity but as but as as you mentioned um this is just distracting from all the major issues mm. that we have to deal with but so which is why one of the issues that we're talking about today mm. which doesn't really get a lot of airtime is climate change I, I mean, mean it just drives me mad that you would say that not at you but just doesn't get a lot of airtime i mean it's it's utterly insane yeah. that this issue does not get a lot of airtime mm. i was listening to the author david wallace wells i think it's the new york magazine that he's i think I think he's deputy editor and he, he wrote this big article called the uninhabitable, uninhabitable Earth, uh, about two years ago, talking mm. about what the worst-case predictions of climate change would actually mean for the world if they were to come true. And mm. lots of people think they will come true. And some scientists disagreed with what he said, but it's very, very scary, very, very frightening. Mm. You know, it's the, it's, it's the collapse of everything, basically, the collapse of our ability to have a civilization. Mm. And um, he created a big fuss, and his book is out in a week or two, and I would really recommend people buy it, for sure. I think we are in the deepest uh, possible nightmare. I mean, David Attenborough said uh, 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 about six weeks ago, you know, the collapse of civilization is on the horizon. And you'd think that would be on the front pages of the newspapers. Yeah. And it's not. Just, 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 just so you can walk, walk us through it. I know it's very difficult to, to predict the scale and the timetable, t- timetable of these sorts of things. But regarding climate change, 
What sort of timetable are we looking at and what are we expecting to happen if things continue as they are? Well, I think this is a really interesting uh, interesting point because I don't think we can know for sure. Mm. So for years, for 150 years or so, we've known the basic science, which if you go online, you'll see lots of people saying this isn't true. But this mm. is a fact that we have known the way the planet works. So there are gases in our atmosphere mm. which keep which kind of act like a greenhouse. That's why they're called greenhouse gases. They keep this planet kind of not too hot, not too cold, just about habitable enough mm. for us. And that's only been for a few t- you know, tens of thousands of years that has enabled human civilization to grow up. Mm. Yes, people will say, oh, the climate changes naturally. Yes, the people who told you that, scientists who taught us that, are now saying, yes, that does happen. That isn't what is happening now. Mm. It changes natu- naturally over millions and millions and millions of years. Very, very slowly it changes and evolves. You know, the planet's been here for about 4.7 billion years. Mm. We've not, human civilization hasn't been there yeah. for very, very long at all. So we know that these gases are there, that they, they trap heat. That's what they do. They, they act like a blanket around, mm. around the world just to keep it uh, in, in, the, in the right place that if, makes it okay for I, us. If I can remember from my year two like, geography or science, um, the sun rays come in at a certain wavelength, but because of the gases, they can't leave because of, because of the gases in the, in the atmosphere, the, well, the, ozone, the um, greenhouse gases such as CO2. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so you mm. sound like you you're pretty clued up from your, from your GCSEs. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but 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 basically, we're just it just keeps it, the, the the gases just keep us it just, keep it just right, just comfortable mm. enough for us, so we that we can all exist in this nightmare mm. world that we live in. Um, but so they've known for years and years and years. They've known when you start when we had the industrial revolution, we start digging up coal mm. and we start burning that. That emits coal is carbon, so it emits emits carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So the more you do that, you're increasing the gases. So it just makes sense the same amount of heat is coming from the sun it does yeah. fluctuate a very very small amount but that's not what is causing this now mm. and so the planet is is getting warmer and warmer the more we put out those gases we put 110 million tons of co2 into the atmosphere every single day that should not be there that should be in the ground that's where the planet wants it to be in the ground that's mm. where the planet has put it in in the ground and so they've, they've, they have these computer models which predict how bad it's going to be. But every time they've had these major UN um, climate change uh, reports from the IPCC, it's always been that they are too conservative. So the actual real-world results have been happening faster mm. and and, and, and worse than what they have predicted. So when I first I saw an Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's film, which won an Oscar, I think it was 2006, 2007, saw that, absolutely wet myself with fear. I mean, it mm. was an absolute wake-up call. I know it was for lots of people, but for lots of people it, it wasn't. Lots of people still haven't seen it. Lots of people saw it and said, oh, I'll just eat my popcorn and have my ice cream and not really worry about the fact that this film is saying the science says we're, the whole of humanity is in deep, deep trouble. Mm. And it seems to me that every, I, I've been you know, very much aware of this for the last 10 or 15 years, and every time these reports come out, it's getting sooner and far more serious than, than they have thought. And the media just does not cover it. We had the last um, IPCC report in October which said, basically, it's an emergency. We have 10 years to do about 50 years worth of work in to reduce our carbon emissions. It's almost impossible. We need a World War II-like global effort to mm. do this. And if we don't, we're in deep shit. So what do we need to actually do? I mean, I mean, we've, we, did a, we did a Twitter poll which says, I mean, people guessed what they thought was the biggest causes of climate change. You had 5% for a lack of recycling effort. Uh, 13% said it was Trump's fault. 26% said it was the meat industry, and 56% said it was big corporations not doing their job properly. Well, they're, they're, they are right. I mean, it is big mm. corporations. I mean, that's why I'm really been very frustrated and 
love Al Gore, totally respect him, but he did help push this narrative that we must all do our bits. Mm. You know, at the end of an inconvenient truth, it says, you know, you know, uh, recycle more and you know, mm. you, you don't charge a phone up overnight and all that kind of stuff. Those things are important. They do save emissions, but we people like me and probably lots of us have been doing that for mm. about ten years, and it's not working. You know, the l- last year was the highest emissions on record. It's going up and up and up and up and up. It's really a very very serious uh, issue. And I think that's the thing that people need to get into their heads. I think a lot of people, and people I really respect, people who consider themselves to be green or environmentalists, or do, they do their bit, that, that, those words drive mm. me insane. They really frighten me because people think if they do their recycling, they've done their bit, that's it. Mm. And it's not enough. You know, we need to force governments to act. And I think this is the year it's going to happen. I think we've got unprecedented protests coming this year. We've got Extinction Rebellion. Mm. We've got School Strike for Climate, which we don't see very much on the media here about that. Wait, Extinction Rebellion? Well, Extinction Rebellion is a group of people, some scientists and some other people, some activists Mm. who've come together to say enough is enough. They're looking at the reality of the science, which is terrifying. It's really, really bleak. Mm. And they're saying we cannot accept this. We can't just go and sit on panels. We can't just have discussions about this. We need to act. So they are people who are you know, run by activists, but they've inspired people. They're giving talks about the science all over the country and they have inspired people, older people, Christians, younger people, people that you wouldn't normally expect to to take radical protest action who are now going to um, engage in a campaign of peaceful, non-violent, civil disobedience who are willing to be arrested, who are willing to go to prison in large numbers Mm -hmm. to get this issue onto the front pages, to inspire people to come up and fight for our futures as we need to do, as the science is saying we need to do and i think we're talking about like literally about we need a global revolution it's not like this kind of nice sweet everyone needs to do this everyone needs to do that oh isn't it awful isn't this awful isn't let's talk about this issue on question time Mm. everything is about to change and i've been saying that like privately and if you've written a few articles about it i mainly write about gay rights but the the fact is the world is about to change in ways we don't understand and we either lead that and Mm. and control that or the planet is going to do it. The planet is in, 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 in a kind of place where it's now kind of throwing us off. We are causing it a problem. You know, there's yeah. species and, and thing, you know, go, we're, I think we're in the sixth mass extinction. Scientists say that the rate of extinction of different species of animals is happening so quickly now mm. that, they, that they term it as a mass extinction event, you know, like when the dinosaurs died because so many animals are dying. Wonderful. I mean, <laughs> even in Australia, that, in Australia we just, they just had a record-breaking heat wave and they had uh, bats, flying foxes, falling out of the sky dead because wait, did you it say, was wait, wait, so fox, hot. Fox, did you say they're, called, they're called flying foxes. They're just kind of big, chunky uh, uh, kind of bats, okay, basically. I, thought, I, I heard the phrase foxes they're falling out of the sky. They're not actually like red foxes that okay. we see like suddenly sprout Because I mean, that would be apocalyptic if it was well, actual foxes falling from well, the sky. Well, who knows? I mean, you never know what's going to happen. You might see cats, you know, with huge fangs like <laughs> eating people on the streets at some point. Nothing would surprise me. So bats, were, these bats were just falling out of the trees dead. Mm. Fruit on the trees, it was so hot. Fruit was cooking mm. on the vine, on trees. We just had like diet die-offs of fish. So there's these photographs of these big lakes where they, they look just silvery because there's just thousands and thousands of dead fish that have floated up to the surface. Well, the mean, planet can't cope, and we, that's we, the reality. We, 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 need, we need political leadership on, the, on this issue Absolutely. because uh, we need to hold, poli- we need to hold uh, politicians and especially, as you mentioned, corporations to account. We've got um, Garrett Thomas on, sorry, Garrett Davies on, uh, on line one. He's the Labour co-op for um, an MP for Swansea, Swansea West, where I used to actually live. Um, hi, hi, Garrett. You there? Oh, missed him. I accidentally cut him off. I am very, very sorry. We'll get. We'll speak to him in a second. Um, but yeah, I mean, as for as for as for big corporations, I mean, they keep talking about this thing called the circular economy. The fact that um, 
the fact that uh, you need to actually use the thing, use the waste products that you're actually pumping out. For example, mm. if you actually if you make materials that are recyclable, if you make your packaging that are recyclable, then you can then collect that material back and then re- and then reuse that later. Is is that the sort of thing you, that you need corporations to, to do? Well, I think we need to completely reorder the, the the way the world works completely from mm. from top to bottom. And I think you said earlier on about uh, you know what do the predictions say? That's the point. When uh, like my brief involvement with government and meeting prime ministers and MPs and things like that, everyone has these kind of panels and they sit there and they talk about oh this prediction and what is politically viable? What can we do? This is the forces of nature. This is like saying can we control the ocean? Mm. You know, it's massive. It doesn't matter what we think. What we think about the predictions. I, I met a journalist from a national newspaper the other day who said to me well, we don't really believe in the science of climate change. And I was like, what do you mean? I mean, mm. this is NASA. I think that's a big part of the problem. The media has not been able to report this properly. The oil companies, since 1988, when they realized they were in trouble, if we do, if we do try and stop emissions, that means those companies who are the most profitable companies in the world will be in deep, deep trouble. So they have funded hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into corporate PR companies to try and confuse the public. So they take the handful of scientists who don't agree and push them out. Mm. And you'll see people like Lord Lawson, Nigel Lawson, Mm. who will go on the Today program, and they've been censured about this before. So they'll have a scientist saying, these are the scientific facts, and they'll have Lord Lawson saying, no, it's not, it's not true, it's not happening. And it's the the false equivalence. this little guy from so-and-so, yeah, exactly, and this false balance. So actually 97%, this is what NASA says on their website, you can look at it now, 97% of scientists say, actually, we do know that it is man-made, not just that it's happening, but it is caused by what we are doing. But that's not what the media. Yeah, well, I mean that, that, that's the false idea of, of balance that you get. You get it with Brexit. You get it mm. with with this. That you have the vast majority of experts saying this is a very very bad idea, and then they have one quack on which has to get the equal amount of airtime to the people that are saying the truth, basically. Um, so, but yeah, we've got Garen Thomas, I'm, uh, Garen, Garen Davies. I'm really sorry that I uh, cut you off there before. How you doing? Right. <laughs> I'm cool. Yeah. Um, so regarding um, policies, what do you reckon would be the most important policy that we need to see to actually address climate change? Well, there's a variety of them, really. Certainly we shouldn't be going ahead with fracking in mm. um, in Britain. Uh, essentially, 5% of the methane is, is leaked through pieces of emissions, which makes fracking twice as bad as coal for global warming because methane is 83 times more powerful than CO2 for it. So we shouldn't be doing any fracking. On the point about packaging, I've got a plastics bill that basically says we should tax plastic. We should have uh, basically all plastic renewable, increase the price of plastics for people, you know, buy one plastic bottle instead of two and can refill it in a local shop, Uh, some things like that. And move towards solar energy, lagoon, tidaling technology, this sort of thing. Well, just to bring just bring back to fracking, if you could just uh, ex- explain for the audience um, what fracking is and what it involves and, and how what effect it has. Well, yeah, in a nutshell, hydraulic fracking consists for fracturing consists of um, basically pumping millions of gallons of water, which is impregnated with poisonous chemicals, some mm. of which are carcinogenic, into the ground to sort of break out methane that's then captured and sold as gas. Because what happens in this is half the, you know, the water which you've got to pump back out mm. is contaminated with all sorts of, with hundreds of chemicals that can't be processed so it's clean. Mm. So in America, it's just dumped in lakes uh, in Arizona or whatever, you know, in the, in the desert. But of course, in Britain, we'd have a problem getting rid of it. Meanwhile, uh, large amounts of the methane is is leaked into the air. It's about 5%. Uh, as I mentioned, methane is... 83 times worse for global warming than CO2. 
So it makes it twice as bad as coal. And apart from all that, I mean, it, it, it's sort of um, it's a problem for you know, air quality as well as global warming, as well as water quality. So it's a complete nightmare. And it's just a sort of sellout to the oil companies as we approach Brexit, really. Wow. Um, yeah, so... That is a very good explanation that you just do not hear. You just do not hear on TV. I mean, the idea that not only are you pumping effectively poisonous liquids into the ground and into the environment, but when you actually collect the gas, you can't collect it properly, and a lot of it's leaking out into the atmosphere, and it's actually causing more damage to global warming than than CO two. That is ridiculous. And regarding regarding um, plastic recycling, uh, you, you said you, you're introducing a bill that would basically tax plastics. Um, that's actually a, a really good good thing. But would you would you want to tax all plastic or tax all or tax tax plastics that aren't recyclable? Well, it's a good point. I mean, the idea would be to, to target the least recyclable plastics. Mm. Uh, so, certainly, the thing about black plastics should be banned altogether. Mm. There's a move by the EU to get all plas- plastics universally recyclable by. 2030, and Britain, of course, is 2040. You hear Michael Gove and the Tories going on about how they're going to do things about plastics, but it's sort of miles after, um, you know, the EU doing them. And again, if we Brexit, we'll be outside of the authority of the EU to enforce their much higher standards. And it's not just plastics, it's things like air quality. You probably know that, um, you know, Britain's been taken to court because 40,000 people are dying prematurely a year from air quality, Mm. which again is about carbon, you know, carbon sort of um, machines, namely cars and the like. And again, we need electrification of our cars and transport and take that seriously. And, and sorry, I was going on a bit here, but on ships, people, the other people don't know is that the 15 biggest ships in the world produce more pollution than all cars in the world. Uh, is a remarkable fact, and people don't really care about ships because they live on the land. But the reality is, how is that possible? Well, these ships are absolutely monstrous, and obviously they are travelling very far distances. So, if as a result of Brexit, instead of we, you know, doing uh, trade with our nearest biggest market, we decide to want things on more things on ships coming off around the world to bring us something, then obviously that will generate much more pollution and global warming again so again you know these things aren't really being talked about it's horrendous it's, it's one of the it's one of the ironies that they call it um global britain this idea that we'll trade with countries that are further away more than the countries we trade country, more than the countries that are right on our doorstep and global britain's likely to you know damage the actual globe which is unfortunate no, very much so and also strip away all our environmental protections mm. and this talk uh, the, the similar fact is that if we're part of the EU, we are required to, uh, by law, to fulfil the, the environmental standards of the EU, whether it's on plastics or on air quality or whatever. Wait, so you're, outside, you're, 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 outside the EU, if we Brexit, hmm. even though the government said um, and, the, and the opposition said that we'll legislate for you know environmental protections, a future government can come along and just tear that all up because they're saying, oh, we need to reduce business costs. Hmm. But at the moment, we can't because the EU won't let us, and nor should it. So you're saying I mean, that the party, you, you're saying the Tory party uh, can't be trusted to in, in protect environmental and social rights? Oh, we know very much so. Well, that's, I, think, <laughs> I think that's a given. And again, same for workers' rights. It'll all be torn up. There'll hmm. be some reassurances. Hmm. But, you know, you face a sort of Armageddon there. 
and uh, got on the environmental side, it's going to be a nightmare. Because uh, again, all this we'll be on our backs in terms of trading deals and all these trade deals with the frackers from America. Uh, they're all been sort of storming in, drilling holes everywhere. And there was me thinking that Jacob Rees-Mogg was some lefty liberal, uh, pro-environmental pro, pro <laughs> type. Yeah, <laughs> must be his top hat. Uh, well, I mean, I, I lived in um, in Brussels, and one of the things that really shocked me and changed me, really, was that in Belgium, in every single household, you have three different bags that you have to put your stuff in. You have a yellow bag, which you put, you put your cardboard stuff in. You have a blue bag, which you put your plastics in. And then you, ha- and you, and you have your general waste, and then you, you, you recycle um, uh, glass separately, which means that you really, really take into account of just how much stuff gets thrown away. Um, and... Which is really, really good because, I mean, when I moved back to the UK, it was really difficult because I realized, hang on, the, the actual infrastructure to make sure that I'm recycling the things that need to be recycled just isn't there. Um, because, I mean, in, when I was in Belgium, they literally won't take away your general waste if it includes stuff that should be recycled. If it's clear that it's got bottles and, and cardboard in, hmm. they won't take it away. Um, and that's something that just ne- ne- really, really needs to happen here. Um, um, and and in, um, in Wales, I think you have, uh, I think you were ahead of England, weren't you, in terms of the plastic, the 5p on plastic bags? Yeah, that's right. And these people say, well, can't go to plastic cups and plastic bottles or whatever, and they're cheaper. But if we taxed plastic and manufacturers suddenly thought it's more economic to produce glass, which is more recyclable, mm. they would. The other thing is that the plastic manufacturers only pay, I mean, 10% of the, the cost of recycling plastic, they should pay it all. So 90% of the cost of recycling plastic is paid by the council taxpayer. So all that should be dumped on the on the producer rather than the consumer. And the other thing I think is people should get in the habit of taking all the plastic back to their their um, retailers. Mm. So if Sainsbury had people dumping all the packaging they had for the previous week, then the next week shopping, they'd soon tell the producers to produce less, and make mm. sure it's recyclable. We know. So, you know, we need to really to take some strong action on this, both from a consumer point of view and a political point of view. And frankly, you can't wait for the government to do anything. Well, but once I, you I start turning that. up in Sainsbury, they'll say, oh, my God, we've got to do something about this. I agree with that, but, but I think we're past regulation now. I think we're past just kind of encouraging people. I think we're past taxes. I think we need to start banning things. And I think we need, I think we need, I don't know, the Queen the Prime Minister, I think we need a national broadcast to explain the science to people. I think the national broadcasters at the moment are not explaining how serious this situation, how screwed we are, basically. And I, and I have a lot of respect for, for this MP here and for the Labour Party too, but I don't think that the, the media and I don't think that the, the, pol- the politicians have done enough to convey the facts to people that, you know, the New York Times, uh, after the last report in October, said that the science says we may be in planetary crisis by 2040. You know, I've got children in my life, you know, six and four years old, you know, godchildren. You know, they're going to be like 26, 24. By the time the planet is in crisis, we need to make this a priority. The way we talk about Brexit every day, it's on the, on the radio and the TV every single day, that should be this crisis we are, we are in. And I think within a few years' time, it's getting so bad already. You know, we've just broke the... Africa broke its all-time heat record last year. I think uh, Japan did. I think Spain did as well. We just had the worst uh, flooding in Australia. 
Australia, the worst heat wave in Australia. I think within five years' time, we're going to be screaming at the media and politicians too. I think there is an anger coming from the public, which is unprecedented, which we've never seen before. To, to, this, this problem is so huge. It's so potentially devastating to everything, to our entire existence, to everything that's passed. You know, the context of our history, the world, all the efforts to fight HIV and AIDS and diseases. It's all about to be wiped out of the way unless we do something and make this a priority now. And I, and I can feel that anger coming from people. And I don't think politicians understand it. I certainly don't think the media, who I have a lot of contempt for, actually, even though I'm a journalist myself, I don't think they understand it. Well, I mean... Uh uh, Garan is part of the um, AP, AP, the parliamentary group on air pollution, which I mean, air pollution is is causing uh, forty thousand deaths, um, early deaths uh, in the UK every year. And as as somebody who has recently had to move to London, um, which I really did not like. In fact, I recently sort of I'm now living half and half in Birmingham because I can't I can't stand London. One of the reasons is I have asthma, and the air here is made primarily of shit um, and it, it is, is just so bad that it's actually it makes me not want to exercise in case I have to breathe in more so it makes me actually feel unhealthy to exercise every time I'm, I'm riding my bike and I go behind a bus and I get that warm wave of exhaust I feel like I've lost a week of my life it is just not okay yeah. I mean uh, what I mean Garen what, what are you what are you what is being done to fix air quality in, in, in this in this country and in, in London specifically well, not enough. I'm going to say, you know, in terms of um, the impacts, you, you may know that basically that with some 40,000 people are dying prematurely as a heart conditions, dementia, depression. For young people, you know, below 18, they're three or four times more likely to suffer depression and uh, anxieties and mental problems, as well as a 10% reduction in sort of lung capacity if they're in a so-called clean air zone. Hmm. I mean, the mayor in London's doing more to charge, uh, you know, for vehicles with heavy polluting you know, exhaust and the like. But all of these areas with young children in poorer neighbourhoods, there should be bans on diesel cars. And we do need to take some pretty strong action. Again, the government keeps on saying, oh, we're not going to put the, the duty on diesel up. We need a fiscal strategy to basically help people scrap very highly polluting cars, uh, put the price up for the most polluting and uh, and provide the infrastructure for electric cars. That's on the sort of car front. I mean, there's, there's obviously other problems. Like we've still got diesel trains that they've cancelled where I am in Swansea, the electrification to Swansea of the railways. Uh, you know, they've obviously agreed to have the um, extra runway at Heathrow, which will massively int- increase the contribution of air traffic to overall pollution. There so we're going in the, in the wrong direction. And in terms of, um, you know, uh, what Matthew's just said, I mean, I, I agree. You know, obviously, we're going to see downstream, you know, we've already seen extreme heat events and hurricanes and floods. We're going to see migration, poverty, drought, food shortages, destruction of species, insect life, you know, fish, the whole, the whole thing is, you know, it's almost beyond belief. And, and there has been an international move to try and, you know, get people to agree to do stuff in particular in the next 12 years. But in fact, in Britain, we see fracking. In Norway, we're seeing oil exploration in the Arctic. In Germany, they're looking at digging under one of the biggest forests for coal. And in the Amazon, in Brazil, they're looking at um, 
sort of basically uh, dealt with Amazon, of course, is a carbon sink. He's mm. just cut it over for agribusiness, and mm. Trump has decided to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. So it's not well, looking well, he, great. He, 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 Trump is always so helpful when it comes to climate change. Um, but we do need politicians to uh, actually do something. I mean, you, 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 you because there's, there's a massive link between the politics and well, the effect on the environment, and therefore the effect on on the human condition. And you, and you published um, a piece this morning in the Metro saying that Brexit will put children's mental health at risk. No parent voted for that. Could you explain that? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, in a nutshell, unfortunately, one in seven of our children have now got some sort of mental disorder. Uh, you know, they're often linked to. Uh, poverty, some of it's linked to um, uh, poor air quality, as I mentioned. Uh, but alongside this problem is the fact that there's a chronic shortage of psychiatrists to treat these children, and one in seven of them are from the EU. Mm. And, um, and 20% of the training places aren't filled. And if we do Brexit, we're likely to look at, um, you know, at greater stress and strain on these families in terms of poverty, because obviously the economy will shrink big companies like Airbus and the like that are moving, there'll be unemployment, air quality isn't going to get any better, as we were saying earlier. Mm. Uh, and yet there'll, there'll be less and less psychiatrists who are being supplied from the EU to treat people. So obviously the mental health of our children and all of us will deteriorate. Well, people who are parents didn't vote for that when they voted to leave. They didn't vote to leave their children at risk. And the point here is that I've got nothing against people who voted to leave the EU, in the sense that they thought it'd be good to get, you know, more money, more trade, and mm. you know, more control. But the reality is, they're not getting any of these things. Well, so people, people who voted to leave, have the right to vote on whether what they're getting matches what they were promised. And nobody voted for their children's mental health to deteriorate any more than the million insulin takers voted for a shortage of insulin and you know, risking their lives. Well, I mean, that, that, that's farcical. That's, that's, the, that's one of the biggest tragedies of the entire Brexit, Brexit vote, that many people, millions of people, would have voted for Brexit on the promise that Brexit would make things better for the NHS, whereas um, citizens, from, citizens from other EU countries make up 5% of our population, but they make up 10% of our doctors. As you just mentioned, they make up 1 in 7, which is even more than 10% of our, um, of our um, psych- psychiatric professionals, which means that there's going to be a significant damage, blow to uh, the mental health, well, to the services that, that, we, that we need. I and mean, the BMA says that a no-deal Brexit would be catastrophic for the NHS. But, Garant, thank you very, thank you very much, um, MP for Swansea, Swansea West. Um, thank you. I, I will speak to you yeah, soon. Talk to you again, I hope. Yeah? Thank you very much. Cheers. Now, we're going to listen to a 15-year-old called Greta Thunberg. She was speaking at the UN COP24 about how we're just, as a planet, not doing enough for the planet. Um, we're going to be speaking to a couple of guests in, in, a, in a second, but I really want you to list, have a listen to this. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old, and I'm from Sweden. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country, and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. 
even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, and we need to focus on equity. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past, and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses, and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. Well, that was really, really powerful. I mean, uh, the idea that a 15-year-old is telling the UN basically calling them out that we have not been doing enough um and also she led the strike for schools i mean could you tell us more about that yeah i think she's amazing i mean i I feel very moved when i hear hear her it makes me absolutely sick to my stomach and ashamed to be a human being that we have left this situation that it's gotten so bad that it takes a 15 year old schoolgirl who's had to go out um and stand outside the swedish parliament on strike on her own that's what she started doing months and months and months ago she went week in week out they tried to get rid of her then eventually because she said i'm not going this is more important than whether i'm here or not so i'm going to stay here and the media started interacting with her and now over like a couple of months, she's got, I don't know, 150,000 followers on Instagram. She has inspired, I think, 15,000 kids in Australia to walk out of school on strike. Yesterday, there were 10,000, I think, in Brussels, in Germany, they, they are doing it. That It's not happening here just yet because our ridiculous government doesn't teach kids very much about the science of climate change. So they don't realize they don't have a future, <laughs> yeah. which I don't think they do have a future at this point unless we all rise up. And I think she's really symbolic of what is happening this year, that people are saying enough is enough. You know, there's no argument that people can have. And I've had this discussion on Facebook when I've posted about Greta and people have said, oh, well, our parents won't be very happy. She's walking out of school. Mm. She doesn't have a future. She's going to school and hearing science saying the planet is destabilizing. You've got David Attenborough saying the collapse of civilization is on the horizon. She's absolutely right to be doing what she's doing. And I hope people listening now will think about that. We'll go and look at some of her her videos, look at what's happening and join groups like School Strike for Climate and also Mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion because... It is important to recycle and do all these other things, but unless we support these groups, unless we rise up, the government will continue doing what they're doing. They have never done the right thing. No government ever does I mean, until we, they're forced. Well, we, we, trust in government isn't mm. really something that people are ten, uh, want yeah. to do in today. We're here we're, we're with, with James Fletcher, who is, right in front of me, he is uh, an actor and an, an activist, in, especially in environmental, in environmental issues, um, and you recently struggled to find a, a, a vegan sausage roll in any sort of, Greg, I mean, that's ridiculous, because yeah. they, they made a big song and so dance about it. They made a big it. thing about releasing this, this vegan sausage roll, which I think is, which is a wonderful thing that, that someone like Greg's is 
is making a vegan sausage roll because up until quite recently the pursuit of veganism has called, sort of been uh, trapped within the middle classes and I feel mm. that Greg's is very much like an everyman shop yep. and therefore them releasing a, a vegan sausage roll is, is a fantastic thing. Mm. However, they didn't actually kind of sell like, it. <laughs> it's kind of like a unicorn. Uh, we, uh, me and my partner uh, went to three different Greg's in Brighton and have searched uh, three or four within London and are yet to find one that actually will serve me a vegan sausage roll. Um, which is sort of disappointing after the hype because uh, yeah, the amount of PR they got. I mean, it was just everywhere. It was like it seemed like a national emergency. They they'd done this thing. You know, Piers Morgan was very very upset yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. You think I'd be if I was Greg's, I'd be like you know st- you know on the street corners selling them. Well, I mean, it's it's just it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, we're talking about veganism here, as you mentioned. It's it's some it's a it's a topic that has been pushed to well, it's been it's labelled as this uh, liberal lefty middle class elite sort of thing. But, I mean, and this is one of the things that, I mean, I'm used to, sorry to be arrogant here, but I'm used to winning my arguments. Hmm. On veganism and vegetarianism, I accept that I'm going to lose. I know I'm in the wrong. I, I, That's I, very good of you, I, I have to say. I, like. I, 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 know, I know that vegetarianism and veganism is the morally correct thing to do, the better thing from the, for the planet. So I'm asking you now, beat the shit out of me. Well, I think, I think that's a very good point to be at least, at least on board with the idea that it is a better way of eating and mm. a better because you know i think there's a there's a lot of sort of hardline vegans out there that just hate anyone that that isn't fully vegan and i mm. think there should be much more room for people that are willing to try or willing to like swap out milk for a plant-based milk or just one step at a time it's like if you mm. can if you can each week swap one other item out you will eventually become vegan or, or very close to mm. and and you won't feel like you're you're missing out on anything and if you can do that over a, a period of time then you're much more likely to stick with it in the long term rather than going I'm just going to be vegan immediately mm. and then miss everything and go, oh, well, I haven't done this right. I'm going back to what I know. Because, you know, at the end of the day, pe- people live, live and lead very busy lives and, and having, um, having to sort of re-educate yourself on what you can eat and what you can cook. And mm. it takes time. Yeah. So, you know, give yourself that time. Don't, don't rush in. Well, I mean, I say that. It took me about a week to tra- transition, but mm. I uh, terribly have to admit that my partner does most of the cooking. So <laughs> it wasn't necessarily something that I had to adjust massively to. But... Um, you know, it, a lot of the time, it, it's literally just a difference of uh, buying a different packet in the supermarket. Like instead of buying the, the butcher's mm. choice sausages, pop in the freezer. I grab some Linda sausages or some or some corn vegan sausages. Mm. Uh, there's a wonderful company that's just uh, just well, it's not just started. It's been out about a year or two in this country now called Umph, uh, which is sort of does uh, foam meat. Um, they do a, a pulled umph and an umph chunk, which makes a really good sort of um, uh, chicken. If you're doing like a chicken pie or something mm. like chicken chunks. Uh, it, Honestly, I'd, I'd serve that to any omnivore and, and <laughs> challenge them to be able to tell me that there's any different in there. Awesome. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess I've got, I've got three questions that I'm going to put to you um, uh, from my omnivore position. Hit me. <laughs> okay. Um, the nutritional benefits, as in the idea that do we need meat in our diet? Absolutely not. I mean, I think it's, it's very clear from the rising, rising number of vegans that we do have mm. that people are leading healthy inverted commas, normal mm. lives without meat. Um, I mean, the, the biggest question you always get is like, well, where did you get your protein from? Mm. And of course, all protein that exists in any animal... Has come from plants anyway. Has come from them eating a plant at some point. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's them eating an animal that's eaten a plant. And it's, it's the... If uh, soy, for example, mm. there's the sort of a big um, hit back on, on vegans and eating soy and saying how mm. terrible it is for the environment. Mm. However... Mm. Big, however, okay. 96% of all the soy created is fed to livestock. So mm. actually, 
rather counterintuitively, if you want to reduce your impact on the planet through just soy, for example, eating soy directly reduces 96% of the soy that is then used because it's you're, you're, you can use it so much more efficiently if you just consume it yourself immediately rather than... It being fed to livestock and then getting to you. Exactly. Because it, it, you so could cut out the middleman. Or, exactly. or middle cow. Middle, middle cow. <laughs> middle animal. Um, okay, another question would be, um, for those of us who let me get, are in my, in my position, can you go, is there a halfway house? Could, could you say, all right, I recognize that, that veganism or vegetarianism is better for the environment, better for my health, these sorts of things. However, once every week, once every once every month, that sort of thing, is, is that cool? I mean, ideally, it'd be mm. great if everyone was living a completely sustainable, completely mm. vegan, completely, you mm. know, basically having the smallest footprint on the planet whilst they're whilst they're here mm. because hopefully we can then like you're saying pass it down to the next generation is it flexitarianism is that Flex- when you're flexible basically exactly you mm. saw it's uh, which is actually a wonderful thing in of, in of itself because essentially it is driving up the demand for vegan products whilst people haven't quite fully transitioned mm. making it so much easier for the next person to be like oh well, now there's this product that that replicates that that brings me this and that means that i suddenly you know, I, I've been very lucky in sort of the, the period of, uh, I think it was about three, three or four years ago that I sort of began my transition. It took me mm. about a week to go from omnivore to vegan, but like I said, it's because someone else was doing the cooking. Mm. Um, uh, and th- the more kind of uh, people out there that are sort of, you know, like you say, mm. on board with the idea and think, that's good if I could just do just this one thing. And it's like the more people that say, I want a, a vegan option and I, I like to just eat at yeah. inverted commas, normal places, yeah. chain restaurants, things like that. Um, it, it drives up the demand, and therefore, the, the higher the demand, the more options there are. And yeah. The more options there are, the more people go. I actually quite. Fan- I'm not even a vegan, but I like that option on the menu. Yeah. The amount of times I go out for for food with people, and they go, "Oh, you're not just having a carrot. That's actually like a really nice meal that you've got there." Yeah. I mean, I went to I went to um, Disneyland Florida mm. uh, last month, mm. um, and they've got loads of the Beyond Meat, uh, mm. which uh, Beyond Meat is brand, which is basically yeah. faux meat company. Yeah. But no. uh, they've got loads of the Beyond Meat um, sausages and burgers, and they're just just phenomenal. And un, you, know, you you feel like you're missing out on absolutely nothing when you consume them. You're like, well, that's that's a burger as I, I recognise it. I, I, I guess I guess my my first time was at university, uh, which is a weird way of saying this. But I, we came across um, uh, they served sweet potato pie, uh, and I was like, hang on. That's a vegetarian option, and I liked it. <laughs> well, there you and, go. and it was it was weird, um, but I, we all experiment at university. At the um, I, I would ask you, uh, Matthew. You said that uh, the onus should need to be more on the on the big corporations in terms of um, how they how the change effect on climate, and obviously the meat industry. Uh, lots of uh, gas is produced, methane uh, is produced from that. Mm-hmm. What would you would you agree? I mean, you're you're not you're not vegetarian no, or, I'm not or vegetarian, vegan. No. Or vegan. I, I would like to be, and you know, when you see the videos of the way the animals are treated, I mean, it's absolutely horrendous. And you know, I, I wish I could be vegetarian, which is a cop out and, and kind of pathetic. And I'm I, I'm you know own that. But my mm. issue may be a little bit. I, I mean, I totally respect this. I think it's really really important. And I think as an individual thing, it's I think it's meant to be the single thing that you can do that does make the most difference. Mm. But as I however. said before, however, <laughs> you know, I, again, it worries me that people think okay well I'm vegan so that's it unless we force the whole world to change and it's going to happen in April Extinction Mm. Rebellion follow it join it it's really really important Mm. it doesn't matter whether you're vegan or not because we're still heading towards 
a cliff which we are all collectively about to go over and the one thing i do worry about is that when I, i've got friends who are vegetarian and vegan and i respect them one of them's doc, doc, uh, vegan dr josh i think on instagram and he's like huge he's really hench and you know he just is he's, he's a vegan but the one thing about it is that when i have friends that you know the, the narrative that oh man it's the most important thing you can do about climate change i think it's quite hard for some people to give up meat i, mm. I find it really really mm. hard i don't eat red meat anymore really but i find it hard to give up chicken yeah. and fish and i think sometimes you can feel like well, if I'm not going to do that, that being the most important thing, oh, I'm just going to forget about climate change. I'm just going to let other people deal with it. And we ain't going to survive in our lifetimes well, unless I mean, we all rise up I now. mean, according to researchers at Oxford Martin School, widespread adoption of meat-free diet, of a meat-free diet would, would, would see greenhouse emissions drop by between 63 and 70... Oh, well, 63% and 70% for a vegan diet. Yes, but there's the key. Uh, uh, so much of this narrative has been about all the di- different things we can do. I've got relatives who mm-hmm. go up and see last Christmas, and my mum said, oh, what should we do with the bottles from New Year's Eve? Are we going to recycle them? They literally laughed in her face. A lot of us can talk about these issues, but the, you know, it's widespread adoption of, of, of you know, not eating meat. Mm. People out there, a lot of people, do not give a damn about climate change, do not give a toss about recycling, let alone mm. telling them to go and give up meat. It's, it's never, ever going to happen for a lot of people. Mm. Like, I mean, I was listening to Nick Ferrari on LBC Radio. He, that man is never going to give up meat. But There's I, lots of people like him. But I, I, I would say that all it takes for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing. So if you know that it's the yeah. right thing, you should, you should do I something. Think that's, I Basically, agree. If you, if you, the, for me, it was becoming vegan suddenly opened my eyes to all of the other things that I could do. So like I said, with being vegan, is you take one thing at a time and then suddenly you're like, oh, well, hang on, I, how, how can I then apply that to recycling my plastic? And then you start with one room in the house, you start with a bathroom, for example, and you go, okay, well, that 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 pot of shower gel could be replaced with a, uh, a naked, uh, s- um, solidified shower uh, thing from, from, from certain brands, which... Can we mention individual brands on this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, like Lush, for example, does mm. uh, solidified shower gel. So it doesn't mm. need a bottle, but it's not soap, so it doesn't dry out your skin. It is still yeah. shower gel, but it is solidified. And it was that, the, the sort of changing of the mind to veganism, mm. or, or and not even just veganism. The fact that you know, the fact you don't eat red meat anymore or much mm. red meat anymore. I think you know that is extremely commendable because, like you say, it it isn't easy for everyone, and it mm. is. It takes a huge shift in your mindset to to be like, I am now open to the possibility that what I know up until this point is wrong and learning that all by itself. And yes, okay, so then I used that to become vegan and, and started, you know, sing, like ab- abolishing single-use plastics and loads of my friends have bought like metal straws and stuff they stick in their drinks and I'm just like, well, I'll sip it out the drink like a Neanderthal, I don't need a straw. But, you know, it's, it's that thing of, of change, it's being able to change your mindset. And like you say, for some people, it's, it, it seems like absolute impossible. But mm. like you also say, we have to do something. We all have to do yeah. something. Well, I, mean, I mean, that that is that is one of the things. I mean, I I I admit that this is a, a wrong perception, but I, I guess I I innately feel that right now the Green Party is one of the parties that sort of represents me as much as as, as what presents what I feel the country needs more than any other party. However, I feel that wait, hang on, can I be green? I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> uh, I think everyone needs to sort of you know make it their own, and yeah. you, you, there is no sort of. I think that's what. I, what I learned from becoming mm. vegan, and I'm sorry to bang on mm. about that again, but yeah. it's that there is no, if you are this, if you are vegan, you then have to look like this and dress like this and mm. all of that other stuff. It's like, mm. you can make it your, you know, you can support the Green Party mm. and go and drive your car at the weekend. But let's, let, let's, hear, let's hear from an authority on this. Natalie Bennett, Natalie Bennett is here. Um, she was Green Party leader from 2012 to 2016, uh, based in Sheffield, where my parents currently live. Uh, and she also um, became interested in environmental issues when she painted a bachelor's degree in, in agricultural sciences. Now, Miss Bennett, how, how are you doing? 
Very good. Thanks very much. Lovely to join you from Sheffield. <laughs> wow, that's a very, that's a very, very long distance call. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, how are you? Very good. Thanks very much. And, you know, obviously enjoying your conversation and what you've just been saying. Mm. But I think a lot of the conversation the last few minutes is focused on individual behaviour. Mm. And, of course, with the Green Party, what we're very much concerned about is, is system change. Mm. We need to make the green and socially responsible thing to do the easiest, simplest and cheapest. And all too often at the moment it isn't. You know, for example, the... Um, it's no good telling people, oh, use public transport uh, and don't take your car if there is actually no buses into your village or your town. Yeah. It's no good t- telling people, oh, you know, uh, you've got to eat vegetarian or vegan, but there's only one choice on the menu and for some other reason of your diet, you can't eat that choice. So what we've got to do is really change with the systems. And, you know, the problems are the big multinational companies. It's great if individuals change their behaviour as much as they can, but let's focus on that system change so it's the easiest, simplest, obvious thing to do and you've really got to go out of your way to do an environmentally bad or socially irresponsible thing. Well, 100%. I mean, as I was saying before, the fact that in Belgium they make it obligatory that you have have to recycle by having different bags, different colored bags for what you put plastic in, what you put cardboard in, meant that uh, my behavior changed. And even when I came back to the UK, I became so much more recycling conscious because I felt it. Every time I put a, a plastic bottle into the regular into the regular general waste, I felt it in my gut because I knew that had I been living in Belgium, I would never have done that. Um, and it's it's really, 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 really important. And but, 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 but even Belgium's not far enough. I mean, one of the things we have to think about is, you know, recycling's all very well, but we've actually got to vastly reduce the amount of waste that we produce. Hmm. So things like plastics, for example, and, you know, there, there's isolated examples. For example, Freiburg in Germany, the city there, um, what they've got is a system with, thing, with reuse cups um, that all of the coffee shops in the city use the same reusable cups. So there's a deposit of two euros or something on the cup. And so you can take a takeaway coffee from any coffee shop and take that cup back to another coffee shop. And if you should, you know, not be bothered about two euros and leave it in the street, then someone else will certainly take it back to get the two euros back. And so then you have no, you know, no need for single-use coffee cups, for example, something we use massive quantities of in the UK every day. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time on trains and, you know, it's just horrifying when you watch the rubbish collection person going down the carriage mm-hmm. and shoveling all those coffee cups, single-use coffee cups into their bag. Well, I mean, that, that, that's 100%. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned trains. One thing I'm, I'm wondering about is HS2. What do you guys think about it? Um, HS2 is a rich person's railway that um, is utterly you know, a total waste of money and extremely environmentally um, destructive. Mm. What we should be doing is, you know, if you start with transport policy, start with encouraging walking and cycling. And you know, talking to you from Sheffield, I'm afraid in Sheffield the cycling facilities are absolutely dreadful. Mm. We need to look at local buses, you know, looking around large parts of Yorkshire local buses have almost entirely disappeared from regional areas, from villages. So people are forced to have a car or indeed they're trapped in their homes. Uh, and you know, also train lines that run east-west across the country. Um, you, it's so hard. I, I know this from bitter experience, just how hard it is, how hard it is to get east-west across the country. 100%. If you've got a train line going down to London, that's fine. And what we're doing is putting a massive sum of money into another train line going down to London. Yeah, it, it just makes the country even more London-centric, which is a large part of the problems that we're currently facing today um, with the big B word. Um, but yeah, you're 100% correct. Uh, I'm sorry, Natalie Bennett, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Sorry, sorry we had so little time, but please come on again soon. I'd be delighted to. Thank Cheers. <laughs> um, but yeah, as I mentioned, the HS2, it's, 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 
it's just a total waste. We need we need actual transport infrastructure in the areas that in the in the in the north in Wales especially because I mean you have to go via Shrewsbury to get from Bangor to Swansea, mm. which is ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. I, d- I did a, um, a book tour for my book Straightjacket, which is about mental health, mm. uh, two years ago, and I went to kind of uh, Birmingham and Liverpool and Manchester and Scotland. And I remember coming from Liverpool and just being how I was shocked at how difficult it was to get where I was going next. And you kind of crammed onto these tiny, like, kind of little skateboard trains that just chuggle <laughs> and take forever and ever and ever. It is very bizarre that, well, it's no surprise, is it, that the government, the people in charge are focusing on London as usual. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess one, one more thing is um, you've mentioned fox hunting before. Are the Tories generally, like, actively... Or, or do most Tories want fox hunting? Because I feel like that's, like, a stereotype that doesn't actually really exist. Um, I, I couldn't possibly comment for every single <laughs> Tory out there. Um, but it would seem that the party would, you know, supports the idea of fox hunting being a, a good idea, and I be very against that yeah i mean just the total i mean okay this this is one one thing where we, where we, we'd agree regarding um uh, veganism i'm gonna take i'm gonna take some time to get there because i mean i mean some of us have a hard enough time not killing people um but uh, <laughs> uh but on fox hunting 100 percent uh guys thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure to talk, you, talk, talking to you, J- you. J- james flesher and matthew todd uh this has been the floor is yours um it'll be available on on, on spotify uh we will see you next week you've been listening to a foobar radio podcast for more information go to foobarradio.com <laughs>